The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. On this week's show, we talk with the head of media banking at Barclays, Peter Cohen. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Evan Novi williams And let's start with a topic. This is rather serious. Uh, at ESPN, uh, they are changing the leadership there because of John Skipper. He is uh, stepping down because of substance addiction. Now, obviously, we wish him well, and he hopes that he gets treated for this. But this does cause a problem at the sports network already going through some issues. A terrible year at ESPN ends on the worst note possible that the guy in charge of so much of what they do, the direction, is leaving. Uh, like Nobody saw it coming inside or outside so to replace a guy like skipper at a tough time when subscribers are down you're looking to move to digital and win millennials i mean just a difficult thing to do it yeah and there were people that were kind of calling for his job already before he signed or before they announced this extension a couple months ago as you said i mean this has been a rough year for espn between the series of layoffs the jameel hill controversy the Barstool sports controversy. They're losing subscribers. They're delayed again. They're they're over the top rollout. Um, is is there a chance that this ends up being good for ESPN? That obviously under Skipper they they, they had some troubles this year. Uh, is there a chance that that whoever comes in can maybe right the ship or maybe steer this company in, in a different direction than Skipper was? Oh, well, we hear what Justin Connolly and Connor Schell are two likely two folks to take over. Yeah, and George one, Bodenheimer's in play. Also. And George Bodenheimer came back on an interim basis. Yeah, so you're dealing with a, a distribution person in Connolly versus a content person in Connor Schell. Uh, you see different people value different things. It's hard to see. A, a positive? I don't see a positive in any way, in losing a guy like John Skipper. Uh, everyone in the industry knows, respects John. Uh, internally, he's so highly thought of uh, by the people that work there. So ESPN's got some things to figure out, that's for sure. Let's see how they do it. Another major topic involves the New York Islanders. Now, they have won a billion-dollar development bid to build a new 18,000-seat arena right where they race the third leg of the Triple Crown Belmont Park. Well, I was at lunch with John Ledecky not long ago, and the very simple question was, if Belmont doesn't happen, what do you do? And he said, I won't even allow my mind to go there because there is no plan B. They really had no plan B. Wow. This is it for us. And that perhaps is what might have made the difference for the Empire State Development Corporation in taking their bid over NYCFC of MLS because they're committed to retail. They're committed to this. I mean, this was it. This was the plan. And it does return the Islanders to 
a spot that is closer, much closer to their traditional fan base in Uniondale, the Nassau Coliseum, than Brooklyn. And Scott, Evan, you guys were on this before this story even became nationwide. Yeah, it was clear almost from the the first game the Islanders played in Brooklyn that the setup they had at the Barclays Center was not good. You know, the, there were a lot of obstructed seats. The arena was not specifically constructed to do both basketball and hockey. Um, and if you look at attendance, we saw this yesterday, Scott. The Islanders are, are the worst team in the league in attendance. They're averaging a little over eleven thousand. It's not like the team is a game. I mean, they're an entertaining, highest scoring team in the league. They've got some things to sell. One of the best players in the league, in John Tavares. Um, it is clear that, that that Brooklyn was not working, um, and what is happening, going to happen in Elmont, obviously gives them a totally new, a, a fresh restart. Right? They have new owners as of a couple years ago. Uh, if they can keep John Tavares, that's great. Uh, but but Elmont brings them closer to their fan base who who are willing to drive to games, which they did in Uniondale for so long. There's a train station that goes right uh, th- up from that's New York the key. City. What they have now that they never had in Uniondale was access to people in New York City. You can now take public transportation to see an Islanders game. I'm guessing that will help boost attendance. Another hot topic. Let's talk about LeVar Ball. Of course, he is the dad of Lonzo Ball, the rookie for the Los Angeles Lakers. He's saying that he has found a long-awaited solution to an ongoing problem. What is that? Well, I'm not sure he's found a solution. <laughs> he says he has a solution. He <laughs> yeah. says that. And, and let me tell you, Michael, and, and I hope I'm going to get trouble for this, but I don't like anything that starts with the words LeVar Ball says. <laughs> you know, I really don't. But let's see if it happens. But to me, the big hurdle with his plan is the promotion and the publicity that players get playing in the NCAA tournament. Six games makes you a household name. Carmelo Anthony, because of what he did in the NCAA tournament for Syracuse University, came into the NBA a ready-made brand. Playing for LeVar Ball's league, big baller, this, that, whatever it may be, will get you nothing. And let me explain what he wants to do. He wants to start a pro league for NBA hopefuls who don't want to attend college. Well, even if you don't want to go, so what? They're talking about the one and done. I'd still rather go to Kentucky. I I understand you're getting paid a little bit of money, even 10000 a month, to play in this LeVar Ball league, he says. But I'm not playing in the tournament. I'm not on TV major TV all the time, and I don't get the NCAA tournament. I think there's a market for this idea, but I don't know if LeVar Ball is the one to do it. I think there's definitely a future, some some kind of jumping off point for high school basketball players who don't want to go to college, maybe want to get some money in their pocket, don't want to go overseas because it's a huge culture shock. The bigger, uh, Edmund, how about the biggest problem, though? They're really, how many people are we talking about? How many legitimate first-round picks are there, high schooler? Two, three, four? Not I, can't, I, mean, I don't want to see that. Yeah, there aren't any, too many Le, LeBron Jameses and that's out there. But anyway, let's see where this goes. Our thanks to Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi williams Now we get into our interview with the head of media banking at Barclays, Peter Cohen. I have known Peter for a number of years. Got to know him when he was selling the Los Angeles Dodgers, Frank McCourt to Guggenheim. That was a distressed asset because of it came out of a bankruptcy. So it's similar to what's going on now with the Carolina Panthers. All of a sudden, a team's on the market that nobody expected. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Nice to be here. You were involved in the Dodgers, but you certainly see the landscape that goes on. How much of due diligence in any of these transactions is media-related because of the amount of revenue it generates? More and more. 
Um, but the difficulty with being with doing due diligence and media deals for sports teams is that most of the contracts are secret between the principals. And only at the very last minute can you ever get a peek at what's going on. So the challenge is uh, getting enough comfort with what the current environment is for media rights that you can feel good about the final proposal that you put on the table. But actually getting a detailed analysis and understanding uh, is very difficult. Uh, the other thing that's also important is where are you in the media rights cycle So for the, for the franchise? So some of these contracts are 10, 20, 25 years long. If you're near two of a 25-year uh, uh, contract, you can pretty much understand what the stream of payments back to the team is going to be, and you can just put that into the model. The interesting thing about the Dodgers and some of the other transactions that have happened in the media world or in the in the in the sports world is that uh, uh, they're very close to the end of their contract, and so how do you really figure what that new contract is going to look like? How do you create uh, auction environment for yourself once you own the franchise so that you can maximize the value of those rights? And then I think today you have to think more and more about what exactly are those rights going to be in the future as the media world and the OTT world begins to change. For what I'm hearing from prospective buyers and their bankers now, there's less interest in franchises where everything's in place, whether it be an arena, whether it be a TV deal. Everybody wants to be creative. They're searching for opportunities, like you just said, where perhaps media is at the end. Steve Ballmer loves the fact that his local TV deal is coming up. That's right. Um, Look, we're in a very frothy environment uh, for sports and sports franchises and the business of sports. I always say that the business itself has gone from beer and tickets and hot dogs to being a much more complicated enterprise where there's real estate, there's media rights, there's merchandise, there's all sorts of things that you can be doing in and around the community um, uh, for a local franchise. And so the short, you know, the more more optionality you have to drive value across all those different elements, the more money you can make for your team. And that's more and more important because people are paying more and more for these franchises and they've got to figure out a way to get some kind of payback. Well, that's my point. These teams today, it's like Bitcoin. It keeps going up. How do you set the valuations for these teams? Well, I don't know anything about Bitcoin, nor do I think most people do. <laughs> but um, Our it, guest today is not Winklevoss. <laughs> I, am not, I am not a Bitcoin guy, um, although maybe I should have been two years ago like everybody else, um, but I should have also bought Apple too. Um, I think that uh, uh, the thing that benefits media or that benefits sports is the scarcity value of sports and the passion that teams uh, you know, put into people. And so... Uh, there's always going to be that demand for the local team, and there's only one New York Knicks, and there's only one, you know, L.A. Lakers, and so the opportunity to get your hands on something like that just creates, you know, incredible excitement. People want to be part of that. Plus, I think now, you know, sports is just the tippy top of the value chain in the media ecosystem. It is the one thing, and this has been you know, well-reported, so it's the one thing that people want to watch at the appointed time and place. It's the one thing that gathers an audience, aggregates a huge audience um, that you can monetize uh, through you know, a- advertising and other, and other stuff. And so um, uh, you know, if you're going to pay a lot of money for something, you still feel pretty good about the demand for your product.
Peter, Derek Jeter, he was obviously a legend on the field and now part owner of the Miami Marlins. How do you think he's doing? He just held a town hall with ticket holders who have concerns about the team. Look, I think as much as teams, individual teams, are businesses, they're also very much community assets. And uh, I think one of the balances that any owner has to strike is the balance between being a good business person and maximizing the profits of the franchise so that you can create a great experience for your fans and pay your players a lot of money so you can have a competitive team on the field. Um, but it, it it creates a lot of passion for uh, in the community. And people think, I hate the owner. It's my team. It's not his team. Um, I'm the guy who pays all the high ticket prices. And, uh, uh, you know, there's got to be a balance. It's hard. And I think he's probably finding that out right now. We are chatting with Peter Cohen, the global head of media investment banking at Barclays. Peter, you talked about number of people watching. It aggregates the live audience. Should the NFL be worried? Should ESPN be worried if the number is coming down, but it's still the king of the hill? It still wins the night yeah. and aggregates the most, but it's not right. what it once was. Who should be most concerned? I think the business is in a little bit of a transition right now, as is the entire media business model. So, uh, you know, how people consume information and video is really changing um, as more and more devices and tablets give you access to any type of content at any time, at any place. Do you believe everything will be mobile in 10, 20 years, that everybody wants this content on the go? Or is it, as Mark Cuban says, they're not doing a good enough job of of really promoting the fact that TV is still the best way to watch. Look, I think I think people will expect flexibility depending on where they are. I don't think it's an all-or-nothing game. Uh, I don't think it really can be an all-or-nothing game because, as we talked about, some especially in sports, some of these rights last 10 and 20 years, and it's tough to unwind these contracts. And that just doesn't apply to sports. It applies to everything in the media ecosystem. But I do think people will have the expectation that if they are a fan and they are uh, away, they want to watch on their phone if they're at their kid's soccer game or they want to watch on a tablet if they're uh, online in an office place or they want to you know, sit at home and watch TV. I think there, there's going to have to be some mechanism that allows you to sort of watch all of these things because I think at the end of the day, the franchises and the leagues have to think about their customer and the customer is the fan, and they've got to maximize that audience. And they shouldn't really care how to maxim where that audience gets aggregated as long as they're watching that game and they can sell that ad. Um, but that's going to take some time because a lot of these rights are uh, spoken for for several years. Um, the technology is certainly evolving. Uh, but there's a lot of strain between in the ecosystem about, you know, I make a lot of money doing things the old way. I don't make as much money doing things the new way yet. And I've got to find that balance. Yeah, but and I, I think that's good. Yeah, and I gotta be there. And I think I think everybody acknowledges they need to be there. And I think some of the leagues and teams, you know, some are more advanced in their thinking, some are not, but I think we're in this period of transition and it's got to play itself out. Peter, I wonder about the cable companies and internet providers selling subscriptions. Do you think that they're doing a good job? Well, I think you touch on something that's very important, which is that online or over-the-top video uh, has proven to be very tough. Uh, it's proven very tough to make money. 
uh, it online. Um, the advertising prices are much lower. There's huge competition, and there's a little bit of a race for the to the bottom um, in terms of pricing. And so, a lot of the content companies, whether they're sports or non-sports, um, have a real difficult time driving profitability. And the way they're trying to create profitability is to create these subscription services. How many subscription services are we all going to sign up for? Um, you know, what if, if you think that the median income in the United States is something like $50,000, and you're already paying for, you know, rent and food and health care and taxes and schooling. And the one that everybody has, and I'm going to say Reed Hastings, and Netflix. And Netflix. Because you have it. Yeah, and Netflix. Yeah. But look, Netflix wants you to pay, HBO wants you to play, Hulu wants you to pay, MLB.com wants you to pay. You know, it just starts, and everybody wants you to pay $9.95 a month. A la carte almost comes out more expensive than the bundle la, right and, now. And I think that's sort of got to play itself out as an economic prospect. I will never forget my father when I first introduced cable in the house years ago, and he thought that was the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. You're actually going to pay for TV? Well, two or three satellite dishes later and subscriptions later, he bought into it, and he is older than I am. I was just wondering how long this trend will continue. Well, I don't know, but I think people want choice, and they're going to figure out how to get the most bang for their buck. Um, uh, I think I personally think there has to be a little bit of a shakeout uh, among all the OTT uh, uh, offerings that are out there, but we'll see. Right now, I don't know that any of them outside of Netflix really has massive scale, and I don't know if, if the pricing is right. I think what Disney is about to embark on is going to be one of the very most interesting things that happens over the next five or 10 years in media um, because they're trying to create a, a real legitimate scaled competitor to Netflix and um, and we'll see. It's not easy creating a, a global audience of 100 million subscribers. We are chatting with Peter Cohen, the Global Head of Media Investment Banking at Barclays and it beat me to it, great mind beats mediocre mind, but I wanted to touch on part of that deal. 50-some-odd billion dollars, and you said Disney is embarking on something difficult here. But $20 billion of that valuation is the regional sports networks. Right. We've talked about rights fees, and we've talked about contracts. We Mostly it was the national deals. These are different, though. These are hyper-local, profitable. If you argue that perhaps there's pressure on pricing, is, is the local sports fan most immune to it? I mean, We've seen they got to have their sports, right? I mean, New York Yankee fans, while can be off for a little while in a dispute, they want to see their teams. I, I think it's a tale of two cities. Um, Best of times, worst of times. I can three, you know, a couple of years ago, no one was watching Houston Astros games. And the Houston Astros were actually off of television because the regional sports network that they had wasn't working. And wound up in lawsuits between the Rockets and, and went the Astros. Bankrupt. Yeah, and they went bankrupt. bankrupt. Um, you know, and not that many people cared because they weren't winning. The Dodgers, another really important team that's playing lights-out baseball and has been for years at this point, uh, isn't offered to half the city of Los Angeles, roughly. Um, but you know the deal is, I mean, obviously you were there. The team's there. getting paid regardless of they, distribution. They are. That's a big difference. That, that, that is a, that's a really important point. But 
you know, it goes back to the comment I made about these businesses being community assets. You know, over time, I think it hurts to not have the Dodgers in your home bringing up new Dodger fans uh, and and uh, and not having access, you know, to them on television. Now they're going to try to innovate and do other things to create the brand. They're playing great baseball, so a lot of people are coming to the stadium, you know. But if you if if your franchise is in last place and 26 games out of first place, not a lot of people are watching, and not a lot of people are advertising on those regional sports networks. So. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Having a portfolio of them, you know, helps balance out the winners and the losers. The real question in my mind is, going back to one of your other questions, you know, does this business uh, survive over 10 or 15 years if no one's really watching television anymore? Um, the, the local owner may, may own a piece or all of the regional sports network, Think of, you know, Nesson or Masson, you know, where the owners have a piece of the action. Um, but if their customer isn't actually watching television or is watching television in a greatly diminished state because they have access to something online, you know, what's the value and what's the terminal multiple? You know, what is the ultimate value of these businesses? I think is I think I think there's a lot of pressure on those businesses and I'm not sure, you know, over time that I think there's. I, I don't want to make any real prognostications, but I don't. I, I think that's one of the big questions in sports: is what what is going to be the value of regional sports networks over over the longer term? I think in the short to medium term, it's fine because of all these contracts. Peter, you have an 11 year old. I have an eight year old. When they watch and they're on the phone or the tablet, whatever it is, sports is usually the second screen. Maybe it's social first or something else. But the game isn't on that first screen. Does this devalue the sports property? I think it's hard to say. Look, social is becoming much more important. You know, putting things on Facebook, on Instagram, Twitter, uh, it's, it's part of the fabric of life now. So it has to be sort of, an, you know, you have to find some sort of integrated experience. I think that a lot of team owners... And even event owners forget about sports, you know, the Grammys, some, some big community-wide event. You know, what, what they're able to uh, do in terms of complementing the broadcast with social media during the broadcast um, is just growing and growing and growing. Well, and your that amplification, helps. that's the word. Yeah, today. yeah, it's amplification. It also creates attention. You know, it makes you keep watching so that you can participate in the discussion. So I think it's, you know, very powerful complementary uh, uh, platforms. In baseball, basketball, football, hockey, you can name the major players involved. You know the names. NASCAR is now going through a phase, well, name me a star in the upper echelon of the sport. And that brings me to this. It comes down to the product. Do all the sports have to worry about the product itself in selling it for the valuation of their business? Absolutely. I mean, I think the stars are actually going to be the future of media. I think that the most powerful connectivity that a sport has to its fans is not through the league or the television channel. 
it's through the star themselves. So I am mean, I taking the commercial on LeBron's Twitter feed? Look, you, you are because you want something that's super authentic, that's you know stamped with his approval. You're you know you're crazy about LeBron or you're crazy about Neymar, or you're crazy about Ronaldo. You know these are global personalities who have global audiences that are massive, bigger than you know the Wednesday night games audience and. Advertisers want to get there. I think it's actually the least monetized part of the whole new sports ecosystem that's trying to leverage social media. The stars are creating their own platforms. Their challenge is creating the media to sort of monetize that platform because they're really busy being stars. You know, they've got to go to practice, they've got to do this, and they don't have the machinery to create content uh, that really allows them to leverage this platform in a big way. But if you think about LeBron or Kobe or Tiger Woods, I mean, all of these great stars have an incredible opportunity. Um, Look what's going on in the rest of golf, for example, you know, with Rory McIlroy and uh, Ricky Fowler and Justin uh, 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 Thomas, um, uh, Jordan Spieth. They have, you know, massive social media followings. And, uh, you know, that's going to be as powerful a moneymaker for them, I think, in the future as anything. We are chatting with Peter Cohen, the global head of media investment banking at Barclays. And let me get to the 800-pound gorilla ESPN. What am I to make of that company right now? Lots of turmoil. John Skipper steps aside. doesn't seem like the best time to be losing your captain. At a time when rights fees are going up, the audience is going down, they're looking at OTT, but you've already talked about the dangers of OTT and the and the return on investment there. What am I to make of ESPN as a business now and as a cash cow for Disney moving forward? Well, I'll say a couple of things. One, one is, uh, and you, say, you, you know, we could spend the entire <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, that's why I brought late. I didn't want to do the whole um, thing on ESPN. Look, first, um, I've only met John Skipper a couple of times. I think he's an incredibly wonderful guy, and I wish him all the best. Two is, uh, yeah, timing is not perfect uh, for somebody of that caliber to be leaving as the captain of the ship. But, you know, ESPN is an octopus. It's in every facet of the sports business. Um, It's underpinned by long-term contracts for very important sports rights. And, you know, over the near and medium term, you know, while they are having, you know, some trouble retaining audience, they're still really big, really important, and really influential, and I would imagine that they'll stay that way. But 2021, for a while. 2022, when those important rights deals are up, that's not that far away. That that's not, and I think it's as important also for CBS and Fox. Sure. Frankly, when you begin to talk about, um, you know, who are these incredibly well-funded technology companies that would also like to move that audience onto their platforms in a more regular way, who have you know, lots and lots and lots of money who can compete for these rights, what's going to happen? I think that's one of the great unknowns. Um, and I think you know, you'll start seeing more and more uh, of the rights go online, but it's not all going to go online because people will still want to have access to it on television. Um, uh, and I think the leagues want to have a customer experience that's still very, very high quality. And um, so they'll continue to find a balance. But for ESPN, you know, I think they've at Disney now acknowledged that they need to disrupt themselves 
in order to play for the longer term future. That's what they're doing. I think they're one of the few companies in the world that can actually not not only do it because of their presence and their size, but also because of their financial resources. And if you have to take a little bit of a short-term hit to really make it over the long term, um, they're going for it, and we're going to find out what happens. So news this week, Jerry Richardson is selling the Carolina Panthers, sort of that frothy feeling that the Dodgers had right. who expected this asset in the Clippers. Nobody expected the asset to come on the market. You know, Diddy raised his hand right away, but I suspect that once he finds out it's a $700 million check <laughs> as the GP, least, that perhaps he'll be happy in a limited position. Right. But again, it is a $700 million check. How many people? Or more. Or more. I mean, that's, I mean, that's right? like a $2.2, I mean, $2.3 billion yeah. valuation. Right. On a global basis, how many folks are out there who are rushing in to say, you know what, I want an NFL franchise now. Are they looking at other league opportunities, like Joe Sy wanted the Nets because of the international possibilities? Yeah, right. What do you think the number or, or, or the fervor is going to be for an NFL team in a mid-sized market? Really, everything's in place. You've got a stadium. You know the TV deal. You're just buying a team. Well, technically, you can move the stadium in a couple of years, or you can move the team in a couple of years. The lease is over uh, in a couple of years. So I think that opens up the number of people who may take a look at that and uh, and see whether they keep it in in the Car- in Carolina or they move it someplace else. Um, I still think it's going to be a very strong. There'll be a very strong bid for this business. You know, football still gets the most audience. It has had a couple of knocks over the past year, as we've all seen. Um, there are some longer-term questions uh, that I think the league is addressing. Um, but there is, and there's been so much wealth creation over the past decade that I do think there are, you know, more than just a handful of individuals who incredibly have, you know, that kind of liquidity to pay for a team if they want to, if they want it. And, um, you know, but it'll, it'll, it'll all depend on sort of price and whether they can, whether the, the league demands that they keep it. Uh, in place, uh, or if they can move it someplace that doesn't have an NFL team right now, um, I think it's going to be really interesting. But some somebody's going to buy it, and somebody's going to pay a big price. All right, that's Peter Cohen, global head of media investment banking at Barclays. Thank you, my friend. Thank nice you. to be here. Thank you. Takeaways from Peter Cohen. I'm just amazed, quite frankly, how you find some sort of valuation for today's sports team, and we went into the information about that it's rather complex and and from a man who advised so many major sports business deals it's really is amazing he represented tribune and the sale of the cubs and what i'm amazed is that simply if and you're going to get this that peter cohen head of global media investment banking at barclays is on our show Yes. Like these yes. are the types of folks that are involved in sports these days. This is not just buying a team and and having that as an asset. This is not the old days. People now buy these teams. They're spending billions of dollars and cutting big time checks. They want media. They want real estate. They want something else. The sports property, the team is just one of the tent poles holding it all up. And you know what? It's it, I'm not trying to blow smoke either. A nice guy. And I started thinking, oh my goodness, this guy was in on a 
$2 billion plus dollar deal for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Just a regular guy. One of those cornerstone, hallmark, definitive moments in sports business that you have to talk about when you're talking about big things that happen. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. And now for the number of the week. I'm so happy we're doing this. (laughs) This is is great. This is great. The number is 13. Gee, I wonder if you can guess this. Well, I couldn't have ahead of time, but I can guess because we have been talking about it. (laughs) For anyone who has a son or daughter, in the New York area, I'm guessing, who has a son or daughter coming up on a bat or bar mitzvah, why just have a DJ? Why just have balloons and games when you can have your very own NBA player show up? (laughs) I love this. This is excellent. In case you guys don't know, Kyle Quinn, uh, he is obviously with the New York Knicks. And now he is showing up at uh, the bar mitzvahs, and he's now known as the bar mitzvah. And I love his teammates. Like, they have no idea what he's talking about. So I'm kind of the bar mitzvah guy. (laughs) If you're looking to supplement income as a professional athlete, you could do worse than showing up at parties. The one thing we don't know is what his his appearance fee is. I don't know what he gets to show up or, what is it, a half hour, hour, take some pictures, throw some basketballs around. But he has become known, as you said, the bar mitzvah guy. I mean, well, great. One of the New York Knicks can show up at your bar mitzvah and have some fun. That's something to talk about and take some great pictures. Uh, yeah, speaking of that, he said about, about 100 kids come up and shout at him, selfie, 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 what's your Snapchat? This is great. And I'm not sure it's for everybody, Michael, but he is like the energy guy for the Knicks. He seems to have the personality that really makes this work. Well, I, this we need to do more stories like this. This is a happy story. Uh, like I'm, the, the more athletes with bar mitzvahs, I'm happy to do it. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Thank you for joining us. And please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.